Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Here we are in the letters to the seven churches. And as we listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead. He is risen, just as he said. And also, he is with us, even to the end of the age, just as he said. We are a golden lampstand like these churches, a place for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine in a world of darkness. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands among the lampstands. The lampstands are not all in perfect working condition. The Lord of the church, he has words of reproof and correction for the churches in these letters. We also have words of commendation and encouragement in these letters as well. And so we listen to the words of our living Lord Jesus Christ to understand his will for us as his church, the family of God. It's important for us that we do not just give lip service to faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is alive, that he is with us, but that we actually think that way. We actually believe it and see it with the eyes of our hearts and that we have ears that are open to hear the words of Jesus Christ spoken today by his Holy Spirit who is dwelling in our hearts. An amazing thing to be the people of God and to be participating in these new covenant blessings. A great responsibility and a great privilege. So let's have a word of prayer before we dig into our text this morning. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we acknowledge your presence among us through the spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, who has been poured out richly into our hearts. This precious value is something that we could never earn or deserve, but is a gift of your grace. And as we have been blessed to become your sons and daughters, the church of the living God, we look to you. We look to your son, Jesus Christ, and his words to guide us, to direct us, to correct us, to encourage us, to show us what it is that we must be if we are to fulfill our purpose, the reason why we have been redeemed as your creatures who had fallen away, but now through the blood of Jesus Christ are restored to a life of relationship with the living God. We pray these things for our good and for your pleasure as you delight in those that you have redeemed. Amen. Well, as we've been looking into the seven churches in Revelation, we've been looking at these postcards that remind us of what Christ is looking for. And he's looking for faith, hope, and love in his churches. As we looked at love last week, I included this verse, which really highlights those three Christian virtues as Paul was giving thanks for the stability and strength of the church in Thessalonica, he wrote and said, We are remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has also been commending and also correcting in the seven churches as he's looking for that work of faith. That's where we began, comparing and contrasting the churches and how they were continuing that work of faith 
both against the internal attacks of Satan and the external attacks of the enemy. And the labor of love is what we focused on last week, comparing and contrasting the church at Ephesus, which was leaving off of love, decreasing in its acts of love, in contrast to the church at Thyatira, whose deeds of love were increasing. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to see in our lives individually and corporately, an increase in the labor of love. And so this week, as we move into chapter 3, we're going to be looking at that third component, that third great crowning Christian virtue of hope, the steadfastness of hope. As we think about faith, hope, and love, we recognize that hope is necessary because our faith is going to be tested. We have dangers from without. We have dangers from within. And also, we are called to a life of love that is costly. It's a self-sacrificing type of love. And so if we're going to be able to go forth with this endeavor of faith without being dissuaded, and we're going to be able to keep on loving at great cost to ourselves, well, there has to be a motivating power for that. And I would contend that hope is the motivating power for all action. It's not a Bible verse, but I think it definitely coincides with what we see in the teaching of the Bible, that without hope, there can be no endeavor. Without hope, there can be no endeavor. Nobody tries to do something if they don't think there's a good possibility of success. And so hope is necessary for work, for endeavor, for labors. And the labor of faith and the labor of love can only be carried on through the endurance that hope provides for us. Hope is the anchor of the soul, as described in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. But not only is it the anchor, it is the motivator of the soul as it causes us to continue and to persevere in the Christian life amid all the difficulties. Now this morning then, I'll remind you of our great verse from last week, that our chief commandment. The greatest of faith, hope, and love is love, and that's why if you forget all the other instructions, you must always remember the one command of the Lord Jesus Christ that you love one another as Christ has loved us. He gave himself for us. No greater love can we show than to give our lives in service to one another as Christ has done so for us. And if we fail to do so, then we fail to be a church. That's the whole point. If everything else is in order but there's no love, there's no point. Love is the goal. So here's the chart. Ephesus, strong in faith, weak on love. Smyrna, strong in faith, no condemnation. Pergamum, strong in one aspect of faith, that is that they were standing firm against persecution, but they were weak on false teaching, the internal test of faith. They were not standing up against the false teaching. The church at Thyatira, strong in love. Their deeds of love were increasing, but they were weak also in allowing false teaching in their church, not being faithful to the doctrine and the life that Jesus Christ calls us to, the purity of life. So now as we move into chapter 3, we're going to be looking at Sardis and Philadelphia. And you see, now we're getting into hope. That one church is a church of little or no hope, and the other church is the church of good hope. And that's going to be our comparison and contrast in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to begin with Sardis, the church of little or no hope. Here you see the map for the churches. We've made our way around. Chapter 2 covers Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Now chapter 3 is going to finish with these last three on this road 
that received the letter from the island of Patmos, and then the messengers carried it around to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia. So Sardis and Philadelphia, close to each other there on the map, and they form a good comparison and contrast in our study in chapter 3. So let's talk a little bit about the city of Sardis and the church that is there. The city of Sardis was an ancient city of historical importance in the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. It was on a junction of roads from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and then into the interior of Asia Minor. It has a lot of interesting things in its history. We may talk about some of those if we have time and it seems fitting. But I want to go ahead and read their letter. I don't want to spend too much time talking about the city. Let's get right into it. Revelation 3 verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message of the church to Sardis is a message to a church of little hope. I was going to say no hope, but the fact that they've received a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ and they've been given the opportunity to repent shows that there is still a little bit of hope for this mostly dead church. Put yourself back in the first century. You're a Christian living in Sardis. You hear the news that on Sunday morning when we gather together, we're going to have a letter that has been written by the Apostle John and that the seven churches in our area have all received a special word from the Lord Jesus Christ. You're sitting there in church on Sunday. You've heard the words of Jesus Christ to Ephesus. You've heard his word to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira. And now you know we're next on the list. I wonder what the Lord Jesus is going to say about our church. And they probably thought they were going to receive a good word of commendation because they had a reputation that they were alive. And so often, our idea about ourselves is dependent upon our reputation, falsely so. Your idea of yourself should not be based upon what other people think about you. Your idea of yourself should be based upon what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks about you. For he is the one who sees. He is the one who knows. He is the one who does not just look on the outside as man looks, but he looks at the heart. He sees the true person. And when he looked at the heart of the believers in Sardis, he gave them this discouraging word. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Can you imagine hearing that? Put yourself in their shoes. What would you say? You might say, well, I don't think this is really a message from Jesus. 
I think John just doesn't like us. I think John is being unfair in his evaluation of our church, and he really should be more thoughtful and not be so critical. That's probably what many people in the congregation thought because they were spiritually dead. And what do spiritually dead people do? Well, they don't listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ says. And they find excuses, and they blame the messenger. And they say, oh, it's John. He's just a grumpy old guy out on that island of Patmos. We know that God is really pleased with our church. I know your works. Jesus Christ starts almost every letter with this statement, that it's not our profession of faith that is important in the sight of God. It is our works that are important in the sight of God. They show what is in the heart. The tree is judged by the fruit, as the Lord Jesus Christ taught. And so the appearance of a church, the profession of a church, the image of the church, the name of a church can be very different from the spiritual reality of a church. This is not only true of churches, it's true of all organizations. All human organizations are created for a purpose. Those purposes can either be achieved or not achieved. If an organization achieves its purpose, it's a living organization. If an organization does not achieve its purpose, it's basically dead, not functioning the way it was supposed to function. A nominal school is a school which no longer provides a useful education, but they still hand out all kinds of diplomas. A nominal business is one that doesn't turn a profit, going deeper and deeper into debt. A nominal army is making recruits and paying out pensions, but it can't defend the nation. And nominal churches hold regular services, but produce no Christ-like beliefs and practices in its congregants. Nominal Christianity has always been a danger. When Christ says to the church, you have a name, you have a reputation of being alive, that's the name, the nominal and name come from the same root words. A nominal church is a church in name only. A nominal Christian is a Christian in name only. People might think you're a Christian, but does God think you are a Christian? That's what matters. You see, things are not always as they seem, and we often are fooled by appearances. Now, what does it mean for a church to be dead? Christ says you have a reputation for being alive, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Well, we look to Scripture to fill in the context. These are very brief letters. They're very terse. And so we have to go to the greater context of the New Testament to fill in the meaning of Christ. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Dead on the inside. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, some 30 or more years before they received the letter that we read in Revelation chapter 2. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what does it mean to be dead? Well, it means that you are following the course of this world. 
that the church becomes no different in its actions, in its behavior, in its lifestyle than the world around it. That's a spiritually dead church, not being transformed by faith, but instead being conformed to the world around it, as Paul warns in Romans chapter 12. This spiritual deadness, it has to do with the trespasses and sins which people walk in. A church full of professing Christians who do not live according to the moral instruction of the New Testament is a dead church. They can have services, they can have songs, they can marry and they can bury, but there's no spiritual life there because if faith is not producing the change to create holiness and deeds of love, then nothing of value is being accomplished. The purpose of the church is not being achieved. Another passage along the same lines, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. On your way back to Revelation, stop off at 1 Timothy chapter 5. In a passage about widows, where the church is to take care of, they are to honor by providing support for those whose husbands have died and who no longer have a husband to provide for them, and talks about the widows and how a godly woman is supposed to act. In verse 6 it says, But, in contrast to a godly woman, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So if someone is living for sinful pleasure, you're dead even while you are alive. This is the walking dead. Just like we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Spiritual life is to be separated from sin so that you can live a life of loving service. That's spiritual life. If you don't separate from your sin, then you can't live a life of loving service because love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is the goal. And then love is the spiritual life that God is looking for. So that's what it means to be dead. Jesus Christ references back in Revelation chapter 3, the few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And so the implication there in verse 4 is that the many have soiled their garments, and that is referring to immoral, ungodly deeds in their personal lives. That is the essence of that spiritual death that we read about in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So the holiness of the church is an indicator of its spiritual life, the moral purity But not just the moral purity, although he doesn't specifically reference deeds of love, I think that is what he has in mind also when he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The work of love, the work of faith, these are works that are not completed. And when a church does not have the spiritual life that produces holiness and acts of love, and that maintains a faithfulness to Christ in not conforming to the world, but this transforming power, then it is a church that does not have hope. And that's where we get to here in the passage. Notice where he says, if you will not repent. The fact that he comes back to a quick warning after he had exhorted them to wake up, to strengthen what is about to die, and to remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. He gave them the prescription. He told them what the solution to their problem is. And then immediately after that, he gives them the warning. If you will not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, which seems to indicate that the Lord Jesus does not have high hopes that this church is going to repent, that they are going to wake up, but that in fact they will continue in their spiritual slumber and he will come like a thief and they will not know when he is coming against them. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is very significant throughout these letters. He references his coming over and over again. That's the theme of the book. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. And so throughout the letters, he's constantly referring to his coming. And that's the way Christ wants us as a church to be living. That we are a church that is full of hope and expectation concerning the coming of Christ. This is one of the key differences between a dead church and a living church. A living church is a church where there's an expectation in the pulpit and in the pews in our conversation and in our written doctrinal statements about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're all waiting, we're all expectant, we're all eager, we're all looking forward to the second coming of Christ. A church that doesn't talk about the second coming of Christ, probably a dead church, probably dead. Life in the church is manifest with this hope, this eager expectation. But notice, the coming of Christ to a dead church is not a good thing for them, But it's a dreadful thing. He says, I will come against you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I'm going to come. This is not new language encountering here at the end of the New Testament. This is something Christ has been talking about from the beginning with his disciples. In fact, I want to show you. Back up with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21. Each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, have a recording of Jesus' predictions and prophecy concerning his second coming, called the Olivet Discourse. In Luke's gospel, it's in Luke chapter 21. And each of these gospels, as they record the words of Jesus Christ at the end of his ministry, before he is betrayed, is this exhortation for us as his followers, as his people, to be in a constant state of readiness for the coming of Jesus Christ. Look at how the chapter ends after he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man. He talks about the parable of the fig tree, but we'll pick it up in verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. You can have the name of Christian, but if your heart is weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, then that day, what day? The day when Christ comes again. It's going to come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times. What did he tell the church to do in Sardis? Wake up. Stay awake. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So this exhortation for the church to be alert, watching, wakeful, ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, not weighed down with the sins of our culture, the sins of the world around us, but instead being purified from sin and actively loving one another, this is the final word of the Lord Jesus Christ in his teaching in the Gospels. How can you say you're a gospel-teaching church and not teach this when this is such an important part of the Gospels? You know, we so often focus on how do you go to heaven when you die, which is important. But Jesus said, you need to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. That's the most important question to go and ask people. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? 
May we be found ready. A church filled with good hope. So, the command to become watchful, we could look at many other places, but I want to do one more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Once again, on your way back to Revelation, stop off in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because it's not only the Lord Jesus Christ who emphasizes this, but it's also emphasized by his apostles in the Holy Spirit throughout the letters of the New Testament. This blessed hope that God has placed before the church that is to be our living hope. It is to be what animates us, what empowers us, what gives us the strength to fight the fight of faith, what gives us the strength to carry on and love one another because we know that the judge is standing right at the door and we want to be ready, loving one another, without sin in our midst, without false teaching, so that when he comes back, we stand before him with confidence. That's what it means to be a Christian. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. Look at what it says. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that day that's going to come upon all those who dwell on the earth, as Jesus said in Luke, that that day will come like a thief in the night. That's exactly what Jesus says in Revelation. I'm going to come like a thief. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, Thessalonians, you faithful church, you who are awake, you who are holy, you who are loving, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Wake up, church. Be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Christ is coming. That's the message of the book. Keep that hope strong. Don't let anything dissuade you. Don't let anything distract you. Don't let anything discourage you. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot that happens in our life that is discouraging. There's a lot that Satan throws at us to try to get us off track. Keep your eyes fixed on your future, your hope. It's sure. Nothing can change the fact that Christ is coming. Nothing can change the fact that you're going to stand before him. The most important thing for you is to live your life in such a way that when you stand before Christ, you get a commendation. And he doesn't say, depart from me, I never knew you. The church at Sardis is full of Christians. The day of the Lord is not going to be a blessing to. Many Christians around us, maybe some here, The day of the Lord is not going to be a blessing to. It's going to be terrifying. And it's unexpected. But we are expecting it. And it will be good for all who are awake and watchful and alert. So, that's the message to the church at Sardis. The wake-up call. You've got to remember and repent. If not, you don't have hope, but instead, you've just got this dread So let's compare and contrast that then with the church at Philadelphia. Back in Revelation chapter 3, we left off at verse 6. Now I want to read verses 7 through 13. 
very nearby, also on the same roads from the interior of Asia Minor to these cities on the coast. We have the church at Philadelphia, a younger city, a city that is similar in many ways, but the church is very, very different. From all outside appearances, the church at Philadelphia was small and weak, and from all outside appearances, the church in Sardis was strong and prosperous, but Jesus says, don't look at the outside, look at the inside, look at the heart. And when God looks at the heart of the church of Philadelphia, this is what he says. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus Christ introduces himself as the Holy One. He introduces himself as the True One. These are titles that belong to God in the Old Testament prophets, particularly the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One. And here, Jesus says, that's me. I'm the Holy One. I am the True One. In the book of Isaiah, you've got the contrast between the idols, which are false gods and nothings, versus the true God. And he is Jesus, the true God, the Holy One. He's the Lord of the church. And he also identifies himself in Isaianic terminology in that phrase that he has the key of David. There's only one place in the Old Testament that references the key of David, and that's the book of Isaiah. Let's take a look at it. Isaiah chapter 22. Leave your marker in Revelation. We'll be back in just a moment. But I want you to see Isaiah 22, verses 15 through 22. Once again, you can't understand your New Testament if you don't know your Old Testament. That's why I'm here as a teacher. But the more you read and study your Old Testament, the less you'll need a teacher, and you will be a teacher. So read and study your Old Testament. Isaiah 22, starting in verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, an exalted title. Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the royal household. I put the word royal in there to help you understand. And say to him, what have you to do here and whom have you here that you have cut out a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? So the steward of the royal house, he's not of David's line, He's just a, a servant who's in charge, but he's exalting himself because he's in charge of the household and he's making himself a hewn out tomb as if he was a king, giving himself this royal treatment in his burial. Verse 17, behold, 
The Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day... I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house." They will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So the Lord is in control of opening and shutting doors that no one else can open and shut, Because he's got the key to the house of David, and he gives it to whomever he wants. And those who exalt themselves are humbled, and those who are humble and lovingly serve others, he exalts. So here when we come to the church at Philadelphia, this is how Jesus Christ is identifying himself. You remember God in the Old Testament, the Holy One, the True One? Well, that's me. Remember that he's the one who has the authority to raise up and lower, to give authority, to take away authority? Well, that's me. And so what am I going to do? I know your works. I have set before you, Jesus says, an open door which no one is able to shut. So here, Eliakim was weak, but God put him in a strong place. Now the church at Philadelphia is weak, and God says, don't worry. I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to set you up to be able to be honored and exalted because even though you're little, you only have a little power, you kept my word and have not denied my name. So this is a church of good hope, a church that Jesus Christ has laid out this future of blessing before them because of their perseverance. They've got the open door and they're going to be vindicated. Notice verse 9 talks about the vindication. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Once again, we talked about that in chapter 2 when he referenced the synagogue of Satan in another city. We also have a synagogue of Satan in the city of Philadelphia who are persecuting the Christians in Philadelphia. They're saying, we're God's people. You're not God's people. We're the ones that God has made all the promises to. You Christians are following a false Messiah. And so God says, These Jews who are exalting themselves and attacking you and rejecting my word, I'm going to make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What does this mean? Is this a reference to some historical event in the city of Philadelphia where the Jews who were not Christians had to come and recognize that the Christians were the ones that God had favored, that God had loved, Or is this something that is yet to happen in the future? Like we have in Philippians chapter 2, that when Christ comes back, then every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And not only are they going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, according to these words here, they're also going to confess that God has loved us and that we are God's people. 
So there's an honor that we receive also at the coming of Christ. And because these letters are so focused on the second coming of Christ, I think that's the right way to read this promise that those who oppose Christians in the present world are going to be forced to acknowledge that those humble Christians are actually the ones whom God has loved. And this is an amazing reversal in Revelation chapter 3 because as Jesus is referencing Isaiah from the beginning of this letter to the end of it, there's another key element in Isaiah that you have to see connected to this back in Isaiah chapter 60. So once more, back to Isaiah, this time chapter 60 and verse 14. The fact that the Jews were going to come and acknowledge that these Gentiles were beloved by God is the exact opposite of the situation back in Isaiah. They've had a role reversal. Back in Isaiah, God is comforting the people of Israel because all the nations are persecuting the people of Israel and not recognizing that they're God's chosen people. And so it says in Isaiah 60 verse 14, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now Jesus says, I'm the Holy One. The church is my people. And for these unbelieving Jews who are persecuting the Christians, they're going to come and bow down before you, just like I told the Israelites that the nations were going to come down and bow before them and recognize that I had shown them my grace and favor. Really remarkable. This does not mean that the church has replaced Israel. It just means that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're living in the time of Isaiah or whether you're living in the time of John or whether you're living today, what matters is, do you believe the Word of God Is that word of God, is that faith transforming you to become more like the Holy One, creating deeds of love that come from that humble heart of service? And if so, then you're going to be exalted no matter how you are put to shame in the present age. God is the same. He hasn't changed. People are the same. We haven't changed. And so from age to age, it's the same message, the same encouragement to persevere and continue in our works of love, because we will be vindicated. We have good hope. Their deliverance is also a key focus here. Next week, we're going to spend the whole sermon looking deeper into this promise of deliverance and its ramifications for our future in this coming tribulation. Notice what he says in verse 10. Revelation 3.10, very important verse for understanding the rapture. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So here is a promise from God. Now, what exactly does this promise mean is a matter of great discussion and debate among Christians. However, What we must all agree on, no matter what our view of future prophecy is, is that Jesus Christ is coming soon, because he says so, and that he will keep those who are faithful to him from the hour of trial that is coming. So what is the hour of trial? 
When is it coming? How exactly is he going to keep us from that hour? That's what we'll talk about next week. It has great implications. It's probably the most important verse for discussions about the timing of the rapture in relationship to the coming tribulation that Jesus talked about in the Gospels, that the apostles talk about in their letters, and that Jesus has given us the book of Revelation largely about this time period. And so we'll get into it. Present several different views for you to be thinking through. But that's the promise of deliverance. We put our hope in Christ. He will deliver us. And then finally, the exhortation. The exhortation you see, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The hope that we have is a good hope. And it causes us to hold fast to what we have. Though Satan and all the world opposes us, though people say all kinds of things falsely against us, though it's costly and difficult to do the acts of love in a world where there's precious little love coming our way, we keep on doing it because Jesus is coming soon. And we hold fast so that we don't lose our reward, our crown at his coming. That's the exhortation. So, as we've looked this morning at the churches in Philadelphia and in Sardis, we've seen the comparison and contrast. One church from the outside looked like it was doing wonderfully, but Jesus Christ looking on the heart said, it's dead. The other church looked very small and weak, but Christ says, you're doing great, keep up what you're doing. Don't judge a church the way people judge churches. Judge a church the way that Jesus Christ judges. Judge with righteous judgment. Judge with spiritual eyes and spiritual discernment. Don't be a fool. Be looking at appearances only. Faith, hope, and love. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for. And when we think about hope, I want to leave you with this exhortation that we began the service with. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whatever you're worried about, whatever you're discouraged about, whatever causes you fear, whatever keeps you up at night, let your hope in the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that he has promised to bring you soon wipe all of that away, or at least put it in its perspective and make it very small in comparison to the joy that you have and the strength that you receive because of that hope, the power of hope. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would fill us with joy and peace through our faith in your word so that we might be able to abound in hope by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might be able to have a better understanding, a fuller understanding of what an amazing hope we have been called to and what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance that you have prepared for us when we get to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself to the point of death and therefore has been exalted above every name. May we also follow in his footsteps for our good and for your glory. Amen.